Ladies and gentlemen, I have found the cleanest crossfade of all time. Go peep Little Sims' pressure and then go put Dave's screw face cap all. Put a five second crossfade on that. All my days is the cleanest thing ever. In the words of public enemies, Chuck D, bring the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week. I am. I am tired. <laughs> I am straight tired. Like right now, it's, it's crazy. But like, I'm. I'm just. It's been a. It's been a just. It's been a irritating week. You know, like, just, just things are just going up and down too much, you know what I mean? It's not, nothing, nothing's level, you know what I mean? Like, so a bit of, a bit of, like, positive thing comes through and then literally, like, two seconds later something negative comes through and I'm just like, can I please just catch a break? You know what I mean? We, you know, you have those weeks, you just, you just try and, and you know, like, you, you some good stuff's going to come out of the week, right? But you just, but then you just get, slapped in the face with like something negative like it's just bro can i just catch a breather right quick can i just have some can i just like sit with this positivity for a for a minute (laughs) you know what i mean just for just for a minute give me a chance here like that's just been my whole that has been most of my week honestly it's it's just it's just irritating as shit I, i i can't stand that kind of stuff like when it comes to just this game of life you know what i mean it just irritates the hell out of me but um you know, apart from that, it's okay, I guess. But that's actually been the whole week for me, to be honest. Like, uh, you know, I went to see uh, Just Mercy, um, and uh, I had a conversation I was going to bring up on here, but I feel like, um, well, I honestly uh, didn't bother putting it down on the agenda, so, and my show was really filled up, so I was just like, <sighs> I'm going to have to move on to next week. But it's kind, it's fine, it's fine, it's fluid, actually. Um, considering the fact I might be going to watch Parasite on Friday, uh, so then I can come back to next week and then, uh, bring it, bring it in full, bring my opinion in full, full bloom. Cause I've had something in my head, you know, as it pertains to like film and TV and like our recognition in the past uh, week or so, especially coming off like the award season. And, uh, yeah, after I, after I saw Just Mercy, it really, you know, rounded out that kind of thought, but I want to go see Parasite just because I want to go see Parasite. And that was part of the equation in my head. So once I see that, uh, I think next week I'll get into that particular hypothesis, and uh, we'll see how that goes and see how that uh, f- comes into comes into fruition. But regardless of that, that's next week. This week, full docket, um, stack show, really black, <laughs> really black show. Uh, but uh, you know, what's that different to any other any other week? Uh, so yeah, let's just jump right in. Uh, four minutes before we begin, have the email, Twitter, Facebook, IG. Discord link in description below, all there in description below. Go get into all of that, all of that, all of that if you want to. And yeah, thanks for listening once again. Um, and might as well just hit the beat and let's get into the show. In a week where Manchester City is banned from the Champions League for two years, well, European competition, might, might be, you know, eligible for the Europa League, <laughs> who knows, uh, for two years over financial fair play rules, uh, Armand Duplantis breaks the indoor pole vault world record twice in two competitions, the latest in Glasgow last week, I saw that live and it was lit, uh, TV host Caroline Flag dies age 40, um, I, I, I do have opinions on that, not on the death, obviously, um, that's just how, that's just is what it is. But um, the conversation around that, you know, about mental health and all that kind of stuff is like, you, you guys have seen that conversation and there's no point in me uh, rehashing. Uh, Chinese people in the UK are being abused over the COVID-19 or coronavirus as most people call it. Um, yeah, I saw like an article about it and uh, there was people in Southampton of all places, um, a bit peaked to be honest, I'm a bit disappointed in that. And uh, yeah, there's some people in Southampton, obviously Chinese and probably and let's not let's not say it's just Chinese, right? I bet a low a bit a lot of Asian people were just like, you know, 
catch-all uh, catch in these uh, kind of things, you know, it's like, you know, you can be African, or you can be Caribbean, but you're still going to just be seen as black and given that kind of treatment. You could be mis- Muslim or Hindu, and then you could be still put in, like, um, you know, that kind of Islamophobic or whatever-phobic, um, you know, uh, rhetoric. So it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if they're Chinese or not. I'm sure a lot of Asian people have gone abuse. But, yeah, still, regardless of that, it's just disappointing. And uh, disappointing, but not surprising, let's be real. Uh, David Stormzy owned the Brits because the gender of diversity still ring, and locust plagues are currently engulfing East Africa. I actually uh, had a um, had a uh, little detail on that in terms of just how uh, terrible it really is. Uh, let's see if I can find it right quick. Yeah, here it is. Uh, Kenya, Somalia, Eritrea, and Djibouti are battling the worst outbreak, worst locust outbreak in decades, and swarms have also spread to Tanzania and Uganda. That's just silly. So you're not talking about coronavirus, but it's still it's still something else going on in the background. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it, com- it comes to that conversation about you know how we see news again. You know, when we talk about uh, the Amazon, um, you know, a few mu- few months ago, all them months ago, remember that? And uh, at the same time, there were like fire. There was, uh, I think. I think it was fires happening in uh, Africa as well, so it's just just interesting, just an interesting thought. Um, I'll leave you with that. But anyway, uh, I mentioned David Stormzy, and uh, might as well get into that and uh, talk about the Brits in uh, in the in the in the prism of not just music but also politics as well, because obviously the performances themselves were very political in the Dave's and Stormzy's case, especially Dave's case. Um, that might have been the best live performance I have ever seen. Um, next to probably Kendrick's Grammy performance in 2016. Um, but, yeah, it's just, just I, I can't praise him enough on that front. And, uh, you know, the fact that he won the album of the year is just uh, icing on the cake. Um, and it's just, a, it's, just a, it's just a great moment for Black British music, of course. Uh, but I wanted to get into this uh, little opinion piece I saw today. Um, I wasn't going to actually talk about this uh, overall, but I just saw it and I read it and I was like, nah, this is worth a read, <laughs> it's worth a read. and, uh, you know, it just adds to the conversation. So uh, this is uh, Grimer's Given, given uh, Black British Politics a Voice, Now the Mainstream Has to Listen, by Kehinde Andrews. Uh, also, we've uh, talked about his uh, opinion pieces beforehand, uh, well, before in previous episodes, so it's good to see him again. And, uh, yeah, let's get into it. Uh, Dave's performance of his song Black of the Brit Awards marked the moment that Grime truly gave a full-throated and undeniable voice to the politics of Black Britain. The track by itself would have been powerful enough, but his improvised condemnation of Boris Johnson as a real racist, quote-unquote, commentary on Windrush reparations, uh, Grenfell and tribute to London Bridge victims Jack Merritt and Saskia Jones made the moment a landmark for the music of Black Britain. Stormzy has led the way in denouncing the Conservative government on his tracks and in public, as well as showing a total lack of fear in declaring Britain to be the racist nation it is. Just last week, I was one of thousands in Birmingham bumping along at the tour for Kano's album Hoodies All Summer. As a sampled voice of the former Br- British Black Panthers, Althea Jones, uh, Lecointe, and a darkest howl blared through the speakers. Across the genre, political commentary is laced through the music, from Guess's dedication of black women on his song Black Rose to Little Sims's anthem for the underprivileged and aforementioned pressure. Uh, all music is political, and, no, and grime is no different. In embracing the reality of the streets and struggles that are and the struggles that are off too often a feature of black life in inner cities. It provides a voice for those on the margins. The sound, lyrics, and aesthetics of grime have empowered a whole generation. But much like gangster rap in the US, grime has largely been trapped in what Tupac called thug life, hyper-masculine, sexualized, and violent imagery. The problem is that this can create a feedback loop, where it becomes the representation of blackness, reinforcing the link between black people and urban crime. As someone whose political education began with early American hip-hop, it is affirming to see the strong emergence of black political voices in British music. Artists such as Public Enemy, KRS-One and Tupac were more important to my intellectual development than any academic text. Commons, a song for Asata, introduced me to the exiled Asata Shakur, living in political asylum in Cuba, and the radical politics of her era. British artists are putting out... Uh, put, putting out Political tracks is not new. Rappers such as Akala, Miss Dynalite, Kaleshnikov, Low Key, and too many others to count have been expressing messages in their music for decades. The difference now is that their messages in the music are in the mainstream, proving you don't have to lose your voice as you leave the underground. 
that artists such as Stormzy, Dave and Lil Sims have their roots in West Africa is also a new dimension. Gone are the days of a strong distinction between African and Caribbean among black Brits, with a common blackness being affirmed by the young generation. Hashtag grind for Corbyn, which saw artists and fans rally around the, rally around the Labour Party, showed the potential for music to mobilise political action. But the key is to build on the momentum. As we saw with hip-hop, the bar of the medium represents the voices on of those on the margins. The industry also tends to commercialise and therefore undermine radical messages. Respect to all the artists empowering a new generation of black people emerging from Britain. This is only the beginning of the next stage of the struggle. So that's all of it. And, um, you know, I've, I've kind of uh, talked about most of these topics in, you know, spurts around my, um, I guess, landscaping <laughs> around my foundation, where it's been on the podcast or I've written about it or I've talked about it somewhere else on Wax. Um, I think the main, I think the... The last point on that last paragraph, you know, as we saw with hip hop and, uh, you know, industry tending to commercialize things. I mean, you know, a criticism I have found with um, someone like Stormzy in particular, this, uh, this, uh, this, in this case, or this uh, moment in time, is that his music has already been very you know, commercialized. I think Heavy is the Head as an album itself is very, um, you know, it has a lot of uh, pop elements in there. Um, and obviously if you're someone that has, you know, been on Stormzy's career before uh, before Shut Up and um, uh, before the other one, I've forgotten the name, yeah, or the other viral song, I've forgotten the name. But um, yeah, if you if you knew his career before then, like you saw, you, you've see, you're seeing like, you know, how the same path that a lot of other black British artists have taken over the years, you know, your Dizzy Rascals, your Wileys, your Jamies and Skeptors, you know, they all came round, the, and Kano, they all came round in the same, in the same vein. I think Stormzy was probably the first one um, in this social media era to take advantage of that exact thing. And, you know, and obviously Shut Up was, you know, the track for a good, uh, for, for, I don't know if it was for a summer, but um, it, I remember it was in the clubs for a while when I used to be about that life. But, um, you know, that, that was probably the first time that happened. And uh, he obviously has, you know, capitalised on that dramatically. And, all f- and you know, in terms of getting the bag, all, for, all, all, good for, all good for him to do that. You know, it's all good on that front. Um, but he, I think he's found a good medium. Uh, I think he's found a good... Um, a good place artistically where you know maybe his stuff now is not as raw as it used to be um i think if you go listen to his older stuff you know obviously clearly it's, it's clearly it's not as polished as it is now his voice isn't as polished as it is now but regardless of that you know he's still you know on the late and what was the what was the latest single um of his album Vossy bob right it says fuck the covenant fuck boris you know what i mean so it's still there you know the intelligence is still there, um, so regardless if you're one of those, because because I do know some people that you know don't not not say don't listen to Stormzy anymore, but uh, you know find Stormzy before the fame better, and that's all and that's all well and good to say. And uh, as it pertains to someone like Dave, who you know this is uh, the <laughs> psychodrama that just won album of the year last night as I record this, you know in the Brit Awards, you know. I I had that in my I think top five albums of the year last year. But to be honest, for most of the five out for five the five six albums and maybe seven albums, I could have chopped and changed all of them. You know, I think the list was um, if I remember correctly, it was like Dave, uh, Rhapsody's Eve, um, Low Key, Soundtrack to the Struggle, Add to Jim Crow the Musical, and Lil Sims's Grey Area number one. So you know, if you go listen to all of them, you know, there's a as you can tell with my music taste <laughs> there's a there's a distinct there's distinct ele- elements of um you know um black intelligence and uh introspectiveness and trying to paint a picture of black life of wherever they come from you know low-key's uh british iranian and he talks about those kind of things he talks about grenfell as well on soundtrack to the struggle too uh, on rhapsody's eve she talks about black women in a myriad of ways and name drops a lot of them you know some of the well, 
all of the tracks are named after black women. Um, Little Sims does a lot of that, um, you know, on the third time I'm going to say it, pressure, you know, it's uh, talking about, um, uh, uh, you know, try and be in my shoes or any black uh, kid's shoes, you know, that's a, that's a line from it. And uh, that's a very, and her album is very introspective as well. Um, Add to's Jim Crow musical is very satirical, um, but there's a lot of commentary on black life in America, you know, police shootings and black love as well. It's very intricate. Um, and I can go a bit further on the list and talk about um, Harriet by Damani and Kosi and uh, Il Camille. You know, that album is very dense and they talk about, um, you know, and they actually recorded in several places, not just in America, but I think like Brazil and um, I think South Africa. Um, don't quote me on that. It's on. It's on my. It's on my top ten. If you want to go look at that, but um, you know, there's there's a lot of those. There's a lot of that kind of music there. There's always been that kind of music there. But the point of the matter, the point of this conversation right now, is the fact that you know Dave's winning album of the year with this shit. <laughs> you know, with the whole concept album. Of uh, you know going to uh, going to a psychiatrist, is it psychologist or psychiatrist? I forget which is which, um, and that's probably I think uh, that reminds me of a um, that reminds me of like a tweet I saw. It's like if you don't know the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist, you haven't gotten a therapist before, <laughs> and that's very true. I haven't gotten a therapist before, but um, yeah, you know that's obviously the concept album and all that, and uh, obviously the, the you know tracks themselves have various um, uh, various uh, conversations in the in in the songs themselves. But the fact that they, you know, this stuff is going number one now, and the fact that you know they're winning Brit Awards for albums of the year, you know, I've talked about the Brit Awards before and how bullshit they can be. Like it's tragic sometimes. And the fact, you know, like I said at the start in, in a week where you know they don't, they they had no women, there was no women to be found um, in these in these particular awards apart from obviously you know the best female and all that kind of stuff. You know, the the gender specific ones, obviously there are women there, but. Apart from that, in the you know when the only awards where it just where it can be men and women, they're not there. They're nowhere to be found. And you know I could have, I could have made a, a a big 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 case for Little Sims to be on album of the year, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but that's another conversation. But in this case, talking about how um, you know for one thing, and I do want to you know send this home to everyone that listens to music. Music is political. Okay, do not get it twisted. It's always political in some form or fashion. It's maybe not as outright as some as the albums I've mentioned, but but most of it is, unless it's the really really super bubblegum pop <laughs> pop music. You know what I mean? But most uh, most of uh, you know genre specific uh, music is political in some way. And uh, I think that's something that all people, some a lot of people, really have to recognise. I mean, you know, we're talking about. It's funny how we, when you know, when you reference hip hop and hip hop history, you know, Public Enemy has been around for like nearly, f- fuck, like forty years now. You know, forty plus years. Hip hop itself as a genre of music has been around for nearly fifty. You know, and people are still having these conversations going like, um, you know, when they when I saw, you know, obviously Dave win. Uh, that album of the year, people were just like criticizing it and talking about whatever. And I'm just like, mate, like you, you're you're having the wrong conversation here, and it's a dead conversation. You know, I don't, I want to let me let me reference the Billie Eilish comments, like you know, from a couple of weeks ago. Talked about that on Digging in Digits extensively. Go peep that, um, episode forty five. Um, you know, that's that's a dead conversation talking about you know rap and authenticity. Um, but the and actually final point on that you know linking that to stuff like dave stuff like stormzy little sims kano right uh gets as well with all that music right with all that music talking about these certain things that some people have actually never heard before on wax that's another thing worth pointing out you know there's a lot of people that haven't heard a record like dave's you know i can reference albums that sound you know that that reference uh, they're a lot like dave's in in many ways you know, it's introspective and uh, you know, concept albums, whatever. I can give you a list, but there's a lot of there's a lot of people out there, especially in the UK, especially of a certain colour of you know, colour of skin, and they they haven't seen they haven't seen this before. This is completely new to them, um, and uh, some people don't know how to react, and that's just you know, it's odd to me, obviously. But in I guess in I guess in that case, I have to realise that you know, not everyone's me, not everyone's black, not everyone is as 
um, what's the word, um, plugged in as I like to be. But anyway, um, the main point, the last point I wanted to get to, this shows me um, that there is a shift happening. I generally think that. Um, now, whether, you know, I know Lil Sims um, is going to be an eyes to probably sticks it in the independent lane and just, you know, and sticks it like that. Won't be like Stormzy that, you know, tries to be the biggest artist and that's, you know, there's, there's no there's no shot to Stormzy or anything. I don't know where Dave's going to go, which route Dave's going to go down, maybe somewhere down the middle, maybe more than the Stormzy, we don't know yet. It's obviously it's only a f- first debut, uh, debut studio album, which is good, great. Um, the shift is paramount. Um there was a there was a lion that I've uh, there's a podcast I listened to um, Ezra Klein show please, uh, go listen to that it's a great interview series um, featuring one of my favorite writers uh, Ezra Klein and uh, he had an episode recently he's uh, just released a book and uh, he's doing a book tour and uh, on his uh, I think New York stop he was with Tanahasi Coates another favorite writer of mine and they talked about you know polarization in the U S and stuff like that but Ezra ma- mentioned this uh, lion that he doesn't want to. I think I think I will preface that it's not fact, but it's an interesting way of thinking about things. Um, culture is ten uh, ten years ahead. Politics is ten years behind, and then we're in the middle. You know, so with that framework, this should have been. You know, I I can see that ten years ago, that there was a shift happening. You know, you remember that. Um, you know, the tiny tempers and the, you know, um, tingy striders, the end dubs, the chipmunks or chip now, you know, they were getting record deals at that point, right? Dizzy Rascal as well, getting his bags, right? That was 10 years ago, right? Now think about now. Think about the 10 years uh, now and what's happening right now. And now think about 10 years ahead. Where do you think this will, where do you think this will sit? You know, that's, that's something worth thinking about. Um, and then obviously politics is going to be way way behind on that front, but um, that I find I find that framework very interesting. And comparing it to this, and talking about how you know Dave is outright calling Boris Johnson a racist on live television. That's ten years ahead, shit. And it's going to be very interesting ten years from now looking at that, and. Also, you know, Stormzy and also Lil Sims and Kano and Gess and other artists and maybe other artists we don't we haven't even heard of yet. Maybe next year, maybe in five years, maybe in ten years. That talk about these things. And you know, like like a the like a Kendi Andrews said, you know, there's people there's been people like a Carla, there's been people like Miss Dynamite Kleshikov from Low Key. They've been doing this for t- over ten years. And and they're generally worth good, good looking into. Please go look into Akala, especially um, amazing writer and amazing just rapper in general. But there's always been people like this. But the fact that Dave is getting British is getting a Brit Award for Album of the Year, and is on live TV in front of millions of people, national audience, saying Boris Johnson's racist and less deforestation. Uh, songs about colorism it's outstanding to me thinking about that and i can't wait to see what happens you know after this in the long term i think it'll be very very interesting in how black british music is uh, going to evolve and potentially will just be the mainstream then and after that we'll have to have a conversation about industry but we'll get to that when we get to that <laughs> But shout out to Dave, shout out to Stormzy, Little Sims, all them artists that are doing their things. And uh, yeah, I, 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 can't, I can't wait. I can't wait to give people words on this, on this kind of music for years to come. I really can't wait. Move on to first of uh, two sports topics I've got today, and I want to talk about the NBA All Star Weekend uh, that's just passed. Uh, and I found it very, very interesting in terms of the conversation ahead of All Star Weekend and the conversation now 
after All-Star Weekend. Now there's been a few days, um, and obviously NBA is a, a break now, and everyone, uh, you know, players and coaches alike get to have a few days break. I think they played tomorrow, as I record, on Thursday. And the conversation I wanted to bring up um, in terms of All-Star Weekend is, uh, well, firstly, how successful it was. Um, for those that don't know NBA stuff, um, the All-Star Weekend has been a bit of a... has been a bit of a... I don't know, a bit stale, you know, just just a little bit stale in some cases. Um, for the past, uh, in, for most of this, uh, most of the, this century, actually, um, it's clear that the NBA, as a as a you know as a as an organization, as an, a major American sports league, um, there's a level of evolution that needs to happen over the next ten years, and they are messing with ideas and experimenting with new ideas of how to play the game and the all-star game in particular that happened on sunday was a great example of how they're trying to see the future or how they're trying to predict the future and you know try and just test the waters to see what the people want and to see what the viewers want how can they you know and and also how can they improve the game itself um it's it's been a it's been a genuine conversation in the past um i say five years where nba people in the league you know playing in the league and just fans alike they've all had these they've all had this um thought that you know the regular season has 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 lost its essence i guess and you know there's a lot of people that just wait until the playoffs and that's that's a bit for me, I find that a bit silly, um, and I find that a bit of, um, there's a level of, uh, what's the word, um, uh, un- ungratefulness, I guess, uh, uh, there's, there's there's another word for it, but um, I, f- I forget, being ungrateful, basically, because, you know what, I would love, I would love to see 82 games in a season, <laughs> I would love to watch a basketball game every every other night, you know what I mean, I'd love to be that person, but I'm not. Unfortunately, I can't. I'm, I don't have the people for it. I don't have the time for it. To be honest, yeah, I can't be that plugged in as I used to be, and I would like to be. Um, but there's a lot of people, especially in America, obviously, that just have you know the NBA there, and it's you know it's the same with football over here. You know, it's so easy to consume football here, and some people uh, people don't take it for granted, partly because the season of football is just so. Um, watertight and uh, you know so important it doesn't really rely on like a you know on an end of season tournament kind of thing that the NBA does Um, and a funny thing the NBA have actually been you know having these uh, have been throwing these leaks you know to reporters going like we might be trying you know a a FA Cup like tournament in the mid-season and trying to like get people you know interested in that and people did not respond to that well People do not respond to that well, and funny enough, nobody's talking about it anymore. But as it pertains to the All Star Game, um, what they did was they switched up a little bit. So in terms of the game itself and the format, um, I might be I might be wrong on some of these uh, details, so um, don't take my full word for it. But basically, I think they had like obviously the th- four quarters as usual, but for every team that won a quarter, um, that was counted as a dub. But the last on the last quarter, the fourth quarter, they the the numbers are technically like down to zero, and it's like first to this particular number, right? So that gives a playground feel to it, and this is and this has been experimented in other leagues, you know, such as the Big Three and the uh, the basketball tournament, um, which was funny because the Ice Cube was begging begging for credit jesus christ he was fiending for he was fiending for that credit he was like give me credit big three did it before the nba he was asking for that credit man and you know he does deserve it but boy he was he was on twitter constantly going like i want credit and then it's like it's like calm down my guy calm down but i understand why he's uh, doing that but anyway yeah you know credit to the big three and credit to the basketball tournament for doing these kind of things and clearly it works clearly it works because the game itself was amazing it was really good it was very enjoyable um especially the fourth quarter there were charges being drawn charges who draws charges at an all-star game um it's it's crazy to me to think about but um 
yeah, you know, it's 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 it's, it's in that case, um, it was a success, and the whole weekend itself was a success. Um, a little note on uh, the dunk contest. Uh, I did mention this in the light note, of the latest episode, of Dinging the Digits, but um, Derek Jones Jr. won. Be mad. Just just be mad. Just be mad. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I don't care if you think Aaron Gordon won. He didn't win. And to be fair, right, um, you know, he, if, you, if you're going to say, I'm going to jump over Taco Fall, who's 7-5, jump over Taco Fall. Because that poor dude had Aaron Gordon's nuts all over the back of his neck. And that's just something nobody wants. That's something nobody wants. Like people be beginning to be overhyped. And yes, the judges did fuck it up, and we can talk about that. But I don't want it because it's been rinsed to death. Um, you know, D Wade with the fixes in, and it was very, um, it was very Vince McMahon of him. But um, uh, but that, I guess that's part of the entertainment. I, I, I watched that live, and I was like, oh my days, they actually did it. Oh my days, that's too funny. <laughs> but uh, regardless, I think Derrick Jones Jr. actually, and he got a Puma deal off that. He got a shoe deal off the dunk contest alone. Like, how can you not root for that? Bruff just got his bag just off a, off a few dunks. That's crazy. That's crazy to think about. Madness. But anyway, um, I thoroughly enjoyed that kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, I think it was just... Um, I think the whole weekend itself was very, you know, well done. And obviously, because it was like, you know, uh, David Stern recently just died. And obviously, Kobe and Gianna and obviously the other people that died in the helicopter crash. It was very somber moments throughout... You know, there was moments of, um, you know, like 24 seconds of cheering, 24, 8 seconds of silence during the all, uh, before the All-Star game. You know, it was very somber in that moment. But, like, um, there were a lot of... Apart from that, the action itself was very entertaining. It was very All-Star weekend, like it should have been. Um, shout out to Common. Um, I can firmly say top five all-time. And I, I say that all... The, I've said that for years, personally. But um, I'm saying that again because those those... That 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 piece he did before the All Star Game started was a piece of genius, and I don't know. There's many artists that can do that with that much heart. Shout out to Common. He does. He that dude is so soulful. Absolutely mad. But yeah, considering the All Star Game was a success and the format itself was a success, and you know people didn't rate it at the start. People didn't rate it beforehand. They were like, "Oh, this ain't gonna work," because you know people were stuck in their ways. It's so funny. Um, it's the same with like F1. It's the same with a lot of sports, actually. You know, uh, uh, you know, every, something needs to change, and then when the governing body wants to change something, they're like, "No, no, no, not that, you idiot." Something else. You know, what I mean, it's just like, what do you want? Uh, I'd hate to be like a you know senior person in like a, a league or a you know governing body because like, it's just so it's so annoying like being a fa- uh, looking a fan sometimes. Like, I I love F1. But I hate F1 fans, bro. I despise F1 fans sometimes because they chat so much shit. It's actually a joke. And, you know, NBA fans do it as well. Like, you don't, you guys don't value the regular season like I would. You know, if I had the league pass, boy, I'd be on that constantly. I'll be, oh, I'll be, I'll be watching every basketball game. I'll be watching as much basketball as I possibly can. But there's a lot of people that are just like, you know, they... They're just they're just ingrained with it. They grow up with it, and they're just like, yeah, yeah. Let's just wait to the playoffs. You know, it's fine. It's like, bro, there's there's something always happening in the NBA every every night. There's a great game. There's someone having an amazing performance, historical performance. It happens in every every other day, but people don't recognize that. But you know, as for the future of the game, there's a lot of things that need to. There's a lot of things that are going to change, and you know, the format of the game might be that. You know, the 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 game that you saw in All Star Weekend, the All Star Game itself, might be the new format of games. It might be, um, and that's something worth thinking about. Um, I wouldn't really, you know, be against it to be honest. Um, in terms of interest, I guess it would um, get a lot of pe- more people interested. I think from a betting perspective, from a money perspective, I think that would be very. Uh, much more interesting, considering how, you know, the fourth quarter basically starts at zero, and then it becomes like a play- playground-esque game, first to 24 kind of thing, you know, that, that could be a great, that could be a great betting opportunity, um, but yeah, um, there's a lot of things that are going to change in the NBA for the future, um, and <laughs> considering this All-Star Weekend has been so successful, and it's uh, finally passed and been and gone. You know, people saying this is the best All-Star game I've ever seen. You know, it was one of the best dunk performances I've ever seen. You know, 
um, everyone's everyone's ranting raving. It's good to see people happy, but um, clearly the game is going to change. Um, Don't know when, don't know how, but it's going to change. Hopefully for the better. Um, There's a lot of places that they can experiment. You know, they can implement it in the G League and then uh, see if it works. And if it does, you never know. Maybe we'll have a, I don't know, a different different shot clock or a you know a different you know five years ago people were talking about extending the courts because people were getting so large um and that that conversation died out maybe this conversation will die out who knows but um and maybe it's here to stay but um in that case it's always a matter of just waiting but for now your star weekend was amazing um it was very entertaining and uh Now it's just the road to the playoffs and I can't wait. So we move on to our second sports topic of the episode. And uh, I wanted to basically give a shout out in a way to uh, this uh, particular uh, book excerpt. Excerpt? Is that the word? Yeah, I think that's what I said. Uh, So... Uh, Howard Bryant, who has written uh, recently written a book called uh, 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 Full Dissident, and basically it's just about, uh, well it's called Full Dissident's Notes from an Uneven Playing Field, uh, and basically he talks about uh, basically like race in sports, black identity, uh, he talks about Colin Kaepernick of course, and basically it's like off the back of Colin Kaepernick and uh, everything that happened there. But it's a very interesting. It's a very interesting book. I've got it on audio book, and I'm going to listen to it in the, probably in the next few weeks. But um, there was this uh, there was a little excerpt that came up from uh, Viley Undefeated or from that exact book, and uh, I found it very interesting. So I thought I'd give it a read. So it's called uh, "Why Black Athletes Run from Black Identity." So just that, just that alone. Just try and think about that. Like that's crazy to think about, but it's a genuine thing. Um, just knocked it to my table. It's a, it's genuinely a thing. So uh, let's let's just uh, jump into it. I'll read. Uh, I'll, I'll probably won't read it all. So it's, it's a very lengthy excerpt. But uh, you'll 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 get the point, and I'll finish when I feel like finishing. When I feel like it. <laughs> um, all right, so let's get to it. Uh, and as she starts off with a uh, quote from Tiger Woods, going, "I'm not black. I'm Cablin Asian." Oh, that's a quality quote. That's from 2000. Uh, Tiger Woods. So. And we actually started with Tiger Woods, so let's get into it. Tiger Woods did not invent erasure, uh, but he will become one of its most prominent, important, and tragic practitioners. O.J. Simpson may have felt no social responsibility to the economic and political status of black people, but he nevertheless understood the currency that came with being black. Being black made an American success story, a self-made black superstar in the white world. It made him unique, it made him an aspiration, it made him money, increases commercial and sex appeal. OJ erased blackness as a political anchor. Woods went beyond taking the extraordinary step of erasing the idea of being black altogether. Tiger did both, first adopting an apolitical posture, then reducing his black heritage altogether by referring to himself as Cablinasian. Get it? Caucasian? Cablinasian? Cablinasian? Oh god. Tragic. Um, a composite were created during his adolescence to describe what he referred to as his Caucasian, Black, and Asian heritage. In sports, the one industry where Black people dominate the world nationwide imagination, the culture, and the talent is superstars actively er- practice erasure, avoiding comment on even the most pedest- pedestrian of current events. Often, growing annoyed at even the most rem- even the remotest suggestions of advocating for a black concern. Many resisted, but every black professional in America understood the impulse. Abandoning black people politically meant an easier life. It meant more money, a vacation house on Martha's Vineyard, or maybe Nantucket, or the Hamptons. It meant a greater possibility of job security, and it created its own language, brackets, I don't want to be a black doctor, I just want to be a doctor who happens to be black, unquote. It also meant being left alone, free of the news cycle, whenever something occurred to black people, because now they were not you. Dwayne Johnson and Maya Rudolph, black people who have uh, earned millions in part by profiting off their racial ambiguity, knows this. Besides, separating from the black world was what you were supposed to do. 
This reminds me of a Chris Rock, a Chris Rock quote about raising your kids. That's what you're supposed to do. Anyway, <laughs> black people know this well. And if whites chose to reflect, they would hear it in their own speech. The number of instances when famous black people aren't really black, quote-unquote, anymore, or their white admirers no longer see them as, quote-unquote, black. The American narrative demands that people, uh, that black people of any promise separate themselves, separate themselves from the lot of the despised, leave them behind. The black athlete is urged to leave his surroundings and never return. He found his way out, quote-unquote. They will hear they are no longer black, but have transcended race. Oh, God, I've heard that before. Uh, there was a day, probably one of those moments, st- uh, staring out of an airplane window, heading to this World Series, that Wimbledon, or countless games in between, when I had a thought. Success in America routinely correlated to the distance from black people. The farther away, the brighter the prospects. The schools were better. The food was healthier. The streets were safer. The services were more plentiful. And the real estate was more desirable. Even the greatest black commodity, its athletes, eventually rejected black colleges for the established white universities that for decades never wanted them. The same was true when the topic was black advocacy. The greater the political commitment to the black community, the greater the professional jeopardy. It explained why even discussing current events seemed such a wrenching struggle for many, so many prominent black professionals, particularly the visible players who seem to have so much control. They composed large majorities in basketball and football, both at the time, both at the big-time college and professional levels. Yet knew that be, yet knew that being identified with African Americans, unless there were millions, there were millions to be made off this cool factor of black culture was a liability. What does one do when the ballast cannot be tossed over, when the money and the material do not provide the promised protection? What does one do with the realisation that even with money, one cannot ever be completely unstuck, as Tiger discovered when his uh, 2017 DUI arrest sheet uh, classified his race as black? What often follows is a suffocate in self-hatred, wrestle which came first, despising oneself or being despised so deeply by one's country that inevitably one starts to believe it. The message to every black child who wants to become them is that they are wrong to aspire to proudly claim the black voice, to take the people with them. Tiger was willing to amputate, saying in effect, I have a Stanford education, I have nearly a billion dollars in wealth, I'm the greatest in the world of what I do, I can be anything I want, dot dot dot, but I'm not that. In what other way was any of this to end? Professional athletes are not only the most visible examples, but what is being asked of them, demanded really, is the same demand for erasure being made of black people in virtually all corners of America. What they are being told is, is not that America isn't racist, but that the players must be comfortable accepting it. Otherwise, changing police or gerrymandering or the obvious hiring imbalances or other important issues from a position of black advocacy would not be accompanied by such dire consequences. But black athletes who do take the public anti-racist political positions and can expect the full weight of their industry, owners, coaches, medias, fans, uh, and most teammates, to punish them. They would become outcasts, active enemies within their industries, weakening their job prospects and endorsement opportunities, increasing the daily stress in jobs that are competitive and difficult enough as it is. They become problems, or they will be ignored by the industry friends and teammates they thought they had. All of this is the human cost of supporting blackness, even in the heavily integrated industry of professional sports, the industry that was supposed to prove the existence of the American meritocracy. These outcomes are no not theoretical, but make up a 50-year roll call of casualties. The punishment is severe, and even the president was not spared. Barack Obama specifically supported black people and felt the wrath of whiteness, first after admonishing a Cambridge, Massachusetts police officer for arresting Harvard professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. for breaking into his own home after locking himself out, and second after expressing for support for the family of Trayvon Martin. After the Gates incident, Obama even sat down for a quote-unquote beer summit with the arresting officer, a rank-and-file cop who should have been disciplined for not using basic common sense, but the black president of the United States 
the most powerful man in the world, felt compelled to answer to an average local cop from an average local police department. On another occasion, Obama fired former Agriculture Department official Shirley Sherrod when the right-wing Breitbart News edited a speech she gave in a way that distorted her meaning and betrayed her as a racist. Obama and his administration caved into caved into it out of fear of the right-wing criticism. Sherrod settled her defamation suit against Breitbart after an embarrassed Obama administration offered her another job which she refused, but the highest office in the land was checked when occupied by a black person. Sports will play its field hands handsomely. Just asked the black members of the Dallas Cowboys in exchange for amputation, but it would not tolerate black advocacy. Whether adopting an OJ birth rejection of blackness or the Tiger Woods sleight of hand identity game, a template followed by Yankee stars Aaron Judge and Derek Jeter, it is understood that amputation is the cost of those millions. The through line continued to Madison Keys in tennis, who responded to being America's African-American heir to Venus and Serena Williams in a July 4th, 2016 profile on the ESPN website, The Undefeated, with the headline, The next great black tennis star isn't black or white, she's Madison Keys. The piece written by ESPN's Elsie Granson begins, Madison Keys' favourite movie is Pretty Woman. Her favourite actress is Julie Roberts. If a movie is ever played about her life, she wants Roberts to play her. Dot, dot, dot. Madison Keys is black. At least according to us, dot, dot, dot. In a 2015 New York Times profile, Key said, I don't really identify myself as white or African-American. I'm just me. I'm Madison. I'm going to leave it there. Um, and it goes, obviously, into that uh, that particular Key story uh, in depth. But um, I just suggest you go read that entire excerpt. It's very fascinating, to be completely honest, uh, in terms of um, case studies. And uh, the whole book itself, I can't I actually, I just can't wait to give it a listen. To be honest, um, I cannot wait for that. There's a lot of things I can't, I can't wait for the, this, <laughs> this episode. I can't wait for the future of Black British music. I can't wait for fucking, uh, I can't wait for NBA to revolve. I can't wait for to listen to this book. But um, you know, go get excited for these kind of things. The small things you have to be excited for. Anyway, um, I find the whole conversation very interesting, and especially when I try to mentally compare it to like, uh, you know, someone like Raheem Sterling. Or maybe someone like Andy Joshua, um, you know, just black British, you know, um, sports stars uh, that we all know of and, you know, are constantly covered in the news, you know, most of the time unnecessarily negatively. And that just shows, you know, the racism in the, in our in our British media. And you can throw in, you know, Meghan Markle as well. We've had that conversation. But... I do. I just find it very interesting um, in terms of how backwards the U.S. is, and especially U.S. Uh, sports organizations. Like you know, the Dallas Cowboys is a very interesting, and the NFL in general is a very interesting case study to think about. Um, if you compare it to something like the Premier League, for example, it's not as it's it's not that bad in terms of the Premier League. You know, in terms of compared to the NFL, Premier League is fucking forward thinking as shit. You know, obviously, there's a lot of uh, you know, say no to racism, uh, kick it out, of, kick it out of football. You know, all those campaigns. And while I've you know, in previous uh, episodes, um, have you know, said that this shit doesn't do anything. You know, at least it's something. Yeah, you know, and uh, in terms of the NFL, they don't have nothing like that. Um, it's very, you know, a lot of a lot of people have said plantation mentality and I fully agree to that kind of thing. It really is sometimes from the looks of it, especially from the outside looking in, very plantation like. Um and especially from like something like the Dallas Cowboys where like if if, if like a race conversation is in the news or whatever and someone asks him about it, Oh, you better dodge that shit, boy, you better swerve that shit like fucking Neo in the Matrix. Whoosh bullet time that shit. <laughs> The avoidance is heavy, trust me, it's unbelievable to look at, but, um, you know, comparing that to someone like, uh, you know, Andy Joshua is actually a great uh, case study to think about, because obviously boxing is not, it's not, it's not as racialized, you know, as something like, you know, the NFL or basketball, um, well, actually, basketball is another conversation. Actually, I'll just leave that. But let's just say the NFL because that's a great case study. I think if you compare it to that, I think boxing because it's so worldwide renowned, and you know every country has a you know boxing 
or or a type of fighting, martial arts, or whatever, you know, because the pugilistic arts are a thing everywhere in the world, you know, we're, we're humans, you know, the only thing, um, <laughs> the only thing uh, we are naturally built to do is eat shit, sleep, you know, and have an instinct to fight people and uh, shag people, you know what I mean, that's kind of the only instinctual things that we have, um, but, I don't, I don't see this conversation coming Anthony Joshua's way ever. You know what I mean? I find that very interesting. For, you know, not for not in a negative way or anything. I just find it, I just find it very fascinating. I'd like that to, I'd like to honestly think about that more because I've literally just thought about it. But um, you know, looking into someone like Raheem Sterling, who is obviously given those particular thoughts, um, you know, has been speaking out on racism in football in a genuine and authentic way. Um, it does make me wonder why don't other football black football stars do it more often? You know, there's, you know, there's people like Ian Wright and uh, and such that talk about it outside of football, but they're pundits. You know, I'm 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 trying to think about the people. You know, so someone like Romelu Lukaku who's currently in Inter Milan and obviously uh, Italy, fucking hella racist. You know, how how is he combating that? You know, I'd like I'd like to I'd like to have that conversation to be honest, but. Um, yeah, I find it interesting in terms of football um, and boxing and stuff like that. You know, stuff is, is it, there's there's probably racial elements there. You know, and we see it in football games all the time when like you know people are getting. Um, there was like a there was like, I think a game in Italy recently where like a a black uh, football player was being racially abused by his own fans, and he was and he was like you know he was going to leave. He was going to leave the pitch. But then his, uh, I think his white, uh, basically teammates were going like, "No, you got, you got to stay, you got to stay, you got to stay." And that's not, that's you know, that's not in Ally One Hundred and One. That's not the thing to do. Uh, white teammates of that black f- footballer, not thing to do. But that's a that's for another conversation. But yeah, it's just, it's just interesting thinking about it. Um, and it the the erasure part of it. Um, I don't think you know someone like uh, you know, obviously Raheem Sterling is leans into that blackness um but i do wonder like uh how many others lean into it like he does um i think most of them just you know focus on being a footballer and that's cool that's good that's a you know in a perfect world that's how it should be but um i do find that interesting um who who does who throws their conversation who throws their their voice into the conversation when a topic of race in football happens um, do they tweet about it? Do they, you know, do they talk about it after after the match or whatever? You know what I mean? That's something I want to like look into um, in the future, to be honest. Um, but in this case, uh, shout out to Howard Bryant, full dissident. Um, please give that a read. That's uh, just the the excerpt itself is amazing to read. Um, and like I said, can't wait to peep the book. <laughs> Lastly, we're talking about uh, film and TV, but in a way, it's just the arts in general. Um, in this, in this particular story, so this is something I found. A few, it was a few days. Oh, it was yesterday actually. <laughs> See, look at me trying to find these. Yeah, no, it was, it was uh, yesterday as I record. Uh, so this is arts bodies. Uh, the arts bodies uh, threatened with funding cuts over lack of diversities by Mark Brown, arts correspondent for the Guardian. And uh, yeah, let's just uh, jump right into it because I found this a very interesting uh, turn of events, to be uh, to be honest. Um, so let's get into it. Uh, arts organisations and museums in England are being warned they will lose public funding unless they meet stretching quote unquote uh, targets to create and attract more diverse workforces and audiences. An annual report from the Arts Council England (ACE). Uh, paints what its chair, Sir Nicholas Sarota, called a, quote, disappointing picture uh, when it comes to diversity after a year after what he, a year after he said many organisations were treading water, quote unquote. Just 11% of workers in England's national portfolio organisations, which includes galleries, theatres, orchestras, dance companies and museums, are from black and other minority I, you know, I'm I'm gonna try and uh, get away from the word minority for the rest of my life, to be honest, because I'm kind of getting annoyed by that word. So I'm just gonna try and remove that word from my vocabulary. So uh, vocabulary. So if I say it, check me on it, please, just for future reference and other uh, ethnic background backgrounds. 
that compares with 16% of the working age population. In London, the, uh, the figure is 15%, nearly the national average, but well short of the capital's overall workforce figure of more than 40%. When it comes to disability, only 6% of people in the arts workforce identify as disabled, compared with 21% of the wider working population. Abid Hussain, ACES Director of Diversity, said there had to be... There, there has to be? Or should, it says it had to be, but it should say has to be. A significant improvement in these two areas. ACE has been publishing diversity data for five years, but has often been accused of merely talking instead of taking strong action. The language this year is significantly more robust. Hussain said organisations would have to start stretching, uh, st- have to start setting stretching diversity targets to be agreed with the council, and if these were not met, they could lose public money. Quote, the pace of the, ch- the pace of change has been too slow, he said. Certain communities are significantly underrepresented, and we need to change that. We need to be very clear. If organisations are not delivering, they could lose their funding. There's been a lot of development support for organisations to get to grips with the challenges. We are moving to a point where the targets are going to be set, and if organisations are not delivering or meeting targets, there will be implications and repercussions, unquote. Details of the targets are expected to be revealed in April, and they are as likely to be as challenging for big arts organisations as for small ones. Hussain said, quote, My frustration is that we have seen very slow pace of change in larger organisations that receive funding. We have, to, we have to see a higher level of expectation to make sure they are reflecting the diversity of their local communities, unquote. The diversity report contains statistics on all aspects of diversity in the sector. On gender, the report shows 47% of the workforce is female, 52 of the national portfolio organisations are run by female chief executives, 45% of the artistic, of artistic directors and 40% of the chairs are women. There was also a breakdown of data geographically and by art form. The report shows that dance has the highest proportion of BME employees at 18% and the lowest proportion of disabled workers 3%. Museums have the lowest BME workforce at 6%. The report says that women make up at least 32% of the workforce in music and men 41%, with 6% identifying as non-binary and the rest of the respondents preferring not to say. The Midlands has the lowest proportion of staff who define as LGBT, 4%, and London has the highest, 8%. All, organiza- all arts organisations are required to integrate diversity into programming in order to get funding. In 2018, ACE introduced a four-point scale measuring their success, ranging from not met to outstanding. For the first time, ACE is publishing individual ratings in report. Not met accounts for 1% of the portfolio and includes the British Youth Opera, London International Mime Festival... <laughs> Okay, uh, the National Horse Racing Museum and the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. Mm, interesting. Uh, the Royal Opera House, which receives one of the largest sums of annual public funding, twenty-four million, uh, got a Met rating. Uh, you know, target Met. Uh, among its workforce, eleven percent are BME and three percent are disabled. Five percent of organisations had an outstanding rating, including Gray Grae, G R A E A E Grae. I don't know how to say that. Grey A Theatre Company, uh, Midlands Art Centre, uh, Power Orchestra and Friends, and Rich Mix Cultural Centre. ACES measuring diversity data will become more detailed when this year's uh, when when this year it begins monitoring the socio-economic background of employees. Jeez. All right. So I mean, big up to ACE for doing this. To be completely honest, as a as a governing body, I find it actually very progressive and actually very. Um, and very airtight in terms of you know the 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 um you know just hamstringing them basically going like you guys need to be more diverse and if you don't be more diverse we're gonna have to cut your funding like straight up like i feel like a government should take a fucking page out of this book to be honest because like there's a lot of shit that can ha- that happens and uh you know i feel like in some ways if this stuff doesn't happen then some repercussions need to be set and obviously the government ain't going to give themselves laws like that that's just silly why would you do that um but as a governing body in terms of just you know being an arts council and uh, stuff like that is very it's highly commendable and i'm you know completely supportive of this and uh, hopefully i can uh, i'll be try to keep note of this for the future honestly cuz um i do follow some um, annual reports in terms of diversity in uh, film and television and uh, I think this one is actually a very uh, more 
UK, obviously UK specific, but just in general arts, you know, um, never knew the National Mime Organization <laughs> was lacking diversity. Who knew? Who, who, who knew there was a Mime Organization, to be honest, but um, that's even here or there. But yeah, that, that kind of specificity is actually something I really value. And I'm, I'm actually kind of a... I'm kind of fascinated by all of this, and uh, so you know, I'm gonna try and keep note of this, and uh, hopefully, just keep note if uh, if they um, uh, next time they release a report, um, the socio-economic ones actually sounds very, very intriguing, very right of my alley. So uh, yeah, I'm gonna try and keep note of that. But anyway, ladies and gentlemen, with that said, it's been most good. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, I think I've gained some steam by the end. I think this. I think the start just felt very. Uh, it, it took me a while to get started, to be honest. Like, uh, you know, I was just, I was just, like I said, the stars. Just, I'm just mad tired. But um, you know, as I as I got into, I gained a little bit of energy and uh, tried to put a bit, a bit of bass in my voice. Uh, <laughs> but you, you probably clocked that. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, from the Fifth Podcast Network, I'm Charlie Taylor. And it's been most good. Intro music is too much by Vanilla. Vanilla, <laughs> too much by Vanilla. <laughs> Italy music is visited by Poldor you can uh, see all their music uh, catalogue via Bandcamp the links below shout out to Chill Records for the ability to use these songs you can also find their discography um, they actually dropped a, uh, a I think an album or an EP uh, today so I'm going to get into that uh, you can find their Bandcamp link in the description below as well and yes apart from that that's all there is hope you all have a good week I'm going to try and do the same hopefully a less frustrating one some changes need to be made, trust me. Some changes need to be made, so I'm going to implement those. But yes, I'm going to try and have a good week. But until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>